Hi there, and welcome to Free Indeed, a podcast about winning the fight against pornography through faith in Jesus. And today we have Peter with us. Hello, Peter. How are you doing? Hello, Matt. I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. Good. It's great to have you on the podcast. Um, the first question I would love to know is uh, who you are, where you're from, what you do for a living. It'd be great to have some sort of sense of who you are before we get into some of the um, detail. Okay, so I'm, as you know, my name's Peter. I'm living in South London, South East London. Um, I am a counsellor, a trained therapeutic counsellor with a specialism in sexual compulsivity or sexual addiction. Um, I've been working in this field for a number of years both privately as a therapist, uh, but also in, in conjunction with something called the Laurel Centre, which is an association of counsellors who work in this field. Um, prior to that, I've been working amongst churches, and one of my passions, one of my desires, is to see understanding of this area increased amongst churches and those who work with people pastorally. Well, that's also one of our aims, so I'm glad we're on the same page for that. Yes. Um, my first question to you is you mentioned se sexual compulsivity, which is actually quite hard to say. Um, I want to talk to you about the term sex addiction or porn addiction. This, this is mostly about porn addiction, not necessarily sex addiction. Is porn addiction a, a scientifically accredited term? We hear it a lot in, um, in terms of the porn industry, but is it actually scientifically backed? In, is it uh, recognised in the scientific community? Okay, so the first thing I'd like to ask about that is, do you need something in the scientific community as a scientific term, as a classification of a broken leg, to know that you have a broken leg? Mm. Just because it may not be scientifically determined in it as a term may not really mean that there isn't a problem in the first place. Mm. So in answer to your question, the quick answer is no, it is not an accredited term. The slightly longer answer is not yet. And the more complicated answer than that is that there are two places where you get classifications for mental health problems. One is called the DSM, and that's produced in America. And the other one is the International Classification for Diseases, which is produced by the WHO. Now, neither of them list sex addiction or porn addiction as a recognized item. However, the ICD does currently list compulsive sexual behavior as a disorder, as a problem. Interestingly, amongst behavioural disorders, there are only two recognised addictions in that kind of accredited sense, and that is gaming and gambling. But this doesn't mean that other processes cannot be addicted. All it means is that as yet, the scientific evidence has not been put together to allow them to be accredited, as you put it. And the expectation of those like me who work in this field is that in time, this will be recognised as an addictive process. We're just waiting for that time to happen. But in the meantime, for those who have a broken leg, we find that it's important to work with the broken leg rather than dismiss it because the term isn't yet accredited. Brilliant. And you mentioned there, it, 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 if and when it becomes a accredited term, um, will it become uh, a physical illness or a mental health issue? And how do you determine whether something is physical or mental health? I suppose it affects both, doesn't it? Well, like anything, there's, there's both the physicality and the mentality to any issue that people are, playing, are, are struggling with. Consider, for example, either gaming or gambling, how much of that is mental, how much of that is physical. Um, the expectation is that this, I feel, that this will be, be grouped with the gaming and gambling as behavioural disorders or behavioural addictions. Brilliant. But that's my personal opinion. 
yeah. based on where I've seen the field going. Yeah. Well, it's great. It's great to have an opinion uh, like based on uh, a good working knowledge of, of the subject. Um, but my next question would be around um, how do like um, how do we define addiction? Um, what, what is actually addiction in terms of like a, a base understanding? And then I guess we can go from there in different avenues. But what what actually is addiction? Well, I mean, addiction again. If you look at something like the ICD-11, and I'm going to pull from that uh, some elements that they say about things. Uh, so you may say an addiction is kind of like a behaviour that feels out of control um, that people have tried to stop, but is but unable to do so. Um, that it's taking them in a direction they don't want to go. Uh, that it is having an impact on the rest of their life. Um, from the ICD-11, the definition they give of compulsive sexual behaviour kind of flows along the lines like this. It's a repetitive sexual activity that becomes a central focus of life to the point of neglecting health or other responsibilities or other relationships. That there have been numerous efforts to significantly reduce the behaviour, but they have not been successful. That there is a continued repetitive behaviour despite adverse consequences to to the individual, deriving little or no satisfaction from it, which is one of the interesting things about a problematic pornography use, if you want to look at it like that, is that very often the individuals don't derive a huge amount of satisfaction, if any, from the activity they're engaged in. Um, there is a pattern of failure to control intense sexual impulses or urges and resulting in repeated sexual behaviour with pornography, the viewing of it and masturbation going along with it, that is manifested over an extended period of time, six months or more. So this isn't something that just happens once. This is a something that's been going on for a while. And it causes marked distress or significant impairment in personal, family, social, educational, occupational or other important areas of functioning. Now, the ICD then adds something else. Distress that is entirely related to moral judgments and disapproval about sexual impulses, urges or behaviours, is not sufficient to meet this requirement in terms of looking at, is this a problem? Right. So we, we have to take the moral side out of it in a sense, just because one may disapprove of the activity on a moral base or on a spiritual religious base, does not mean that what someone is engaging in is actually a problem. Yeah, I might disapprove, for example, of having cookies after my tea because I don't really need a biscuit after my tea. But just because I have a biscuit after my tea doesn't mean that I'm addicted to having a biscuit after my tea. Right. And it's important to distinguish between the two patterns of behavior. And also part of that is the solution is that this the, the way that people overcome porn addiction is not necessarily through a moral epiphany or or begin to engage or begin to dislike it even more. Actually, there's something deeper that actually needs to go on to, to solve or to, to heal, I guess. It's so my... Yeah, again, in my experience with working in this field, I kind of feel that there are two areas that we tend to take people through. One is the question of what are you doing and how can you stop that if you want to stop it? And the other one is why are you doing it in the first place? And often it's the what I, what I am doing that brings people through the door. But the more complicated part of this journey is exploring the why. What might you be getting out of it? What's happening for you? Uh, for some people, it's simply that there's an opportunity that they've learned to exploit. And so closing down the opportunity solves the problem. For other people, it's more about managing their emotional life, the pain that they may feel, 
the relational issues that they have, the self-esteem issues and the shame, which can all feed into a, a behavior that they're trying to do in order to get away from feeling uncomfortable with life. Again, if you think about the term comfort eating, it's a very similar thing. So people who comfort eat in order to deal with their own anxiety or their own self-esteem issues, some, for some people, problematic pornography is a comfort porn use. So in terms of uh, media portrayal of addiction, there is uh, within movies and TV, uh, a, a classic sort of like representation of what what physically is going on for someone who's addicted to uh, the shakes, the sort of like the sweats, the uncontrollable urges. Um, also sort of, like you said before, going to any lengths to uh, and, and, and really sort of uh, experiencing some damaging effects of that behavior, but still carrying on. How in terms of physically, how, how does how does that manifest? Is that is that accurate? Is it quite accurate to to see people who experience porn addiction, experience shakes or uh, sweatiness or things like that? What are some of the sort of physical manifestations of porn addiction? That's a really, really large piece of string. And it's an incredibly broad question. And, and when, I, when I hear you describe it like that, my mind kind of flips more to the, the substance abuse addictions rather than the behavioral side of things. Uh, is it, but do people experience anxiety when they're not able to get hold of their behavior of choice, their fix of choice? Uh, some do. I've not seen people sit in front of me literally shaking because they're not able to access their pornography or are trying to stop pornography. Um, but that sense of um, craving for something, longing for something, feeling heightened anxiety because one can't get it, um, feeling a bit low and depressed because one can't get it. Um, yes, that's all there. But again, I wonder to what extent the habit of using pornography in this case, a bit like the habit of turning to a cigarette or comfort eating, has masked what is already there. And when you take away the blanket, it just feels a lot more uncomfortable. So we've spoken a little bit about uh, addiction, how that manifests, the, some of the causes, some of the things that go on. Uh, I'd like to sort of turn now to what actually is going on in our brains, either physical, physiologically or psychologically during porn use. So during porn use, what, what is actually going on in our brains and, and how is that? How is the habit or addiction formed psychologically? Right. If you could take me that. For anybody who's interested in actually having a look at that a little bit more, I can recommend a book that's called Your Brain on Porn, Internet Pornography and the Emerging Science of Addiction. It's written by someone called Gary Wilson. Um, and in it, it has a chapter on the biology that goes on in the brain. I mean, our brains are amazingly complicated things, way more complicated than I understand. But there are some things that I think we can look at here. When, uh, when you look at the brain formation throughout life, there is what is often referred to now as, um, if you know the old debate of nature-nurture, well, most people now sit with the, it's not an either or, but a both and. So we tend to look at what is the biology that's going on within the, within the person? What is the psychology that's going on within the person? But also what is the sociology, the cultural impact of what's going on within the person? And that's often referred to now as the biopsychosocial view of what makes us who we are. Um, someone else has looked at it and said, you can add in what is the emotional life, the relational life, the sociological life and the cultural life that that person is exposed to and experiencing that may feed into the behaviours that they're engaged in. And that applies to porn use as anything else. 
But with regards to pattern formation, we all develop habits. That's how we live. And our brain may be considered in a sense to be a butler. It's trying to make life automated and make it easier. I am, Matt, uh, I can't remember, you, you drive or learn an instrument or something like that. Uh, I'm learning to drive, but I do learning. play an instrument. I do play an instrument. Yeah, I play the clarinet. Well, I used to play the clarinet. I haven't played so you used to play years. the clarinet. I mean, when you've got a new piece that you're learning for an exam grade in clarinet, you're trying it out for the first time, what's it like? What was it like in your experience? Uh, a lot of mistakes, um, you know, uh, difficult to read. Um, try and learn it like off by heart if you can. Um, trying to make sure that you sort of know it as best as you can before you go into the exam. So off by heart, which means that you're trying to automate the process of where the keys, what, you know, what notes you play in what order. And that gives you time to focus more on the nuance of tone and that kind of thing in trying to get something of the move the piece across and not just the technicality of the notes. It's the same with driving. When you first learn to drive, it can feel really clunky and awkward and a lot of people describe it as terrifying. But those who have driven for many years, it's automatic. They don't even think about it. Much like if you know a piece in the clarinet really well, you don't need to think about it. It's just there, it just flows. And that's what the brain is trying to do. It's trying to make life automatic. Now, if, for example, I'm feeling a bit low, and I decide that, well, let's have some excitement or here's something interesting. It's called pornography. And, and that's quite exciting. It's quite pleasurable. And there's an arousal state that comes with it. And there's an erection that comes with it. And there's masturbation and orgasm. And all of that is quite an intense experience. Our brain will remember that. And our brain may then, you know, the next time we feel low, there's a little bit in our brain that may say, well, remember this. And the more we engage with that pattern of behavior, the more automated it's going to become. And our butler is just making it automatic for us. So over time, the association becomes automatic. And it's a bit like Pavlov and his dogs. If you have ever heard of that experiment, ring yeah. the bell, the dog salivates because it associates the ringing of the bell with food being available. And our brains are brilliant at that. It's really useful. But in the terms of problematic pornography use, it's actually making associations that are unhelpful for us in the long run. The thing is, is that association may grow to encompass more and more of life. So if I use pornography reg regularly in the evening just before I go to bed, again, I'm making that association and that pattern. If I use pornography always on my phone, then for some people, just picking up the phone is enough for the urge to use pornography to rise up within them because that's the association their brain is making. This is what we do here. Why are you trying to do different? Mm. And so it's unlearning all of that. It's going in different places and in different directions that can be really helpful uh, for this. Can we explore that a little bit more, just that some of the disassociation, uh, maybe around phones or just around the sort of time or setting of pornography use that begun, be, begin, be, becomes automatic? How do you be, begin to then disassociate yourself? Okay, well, a, a simple one for, for, that may be looked at is if you always find yourself looking at pornography when you go to bed, well, why not leave your phone out of the room? Mm. Buy or not, if you say, well, I need my phone for my alarm, buy an old alarm. <laughs> Use the old alarm Exist. in your room, leave the phone out of the room. You're breaking the association. Yeah, that's a simple thing like that. And you can, you can look at that through other parts of, of life. Um, that someone, you know, what are the habits? What are the patterns? But then all that that may leave then is space for the underbelly of the issue. It's like the iceberg tip is the behavior. That's the easy bit. That's what you can see above the water. 
But if there are issues around low self-esteem or shame or um, fear or whatever that is under, underneath it all, if you just stop behavior, that, that will float to the surface. And then the exploration is, well, where's that from? What's that about? How do you help to do things differently in a way that is more appropriate? What are the unmet needs if you're anxious? Well, one of the unmet needs may be to be calmed. If there's a sense of a lack of acceptance in life, well, one of the unmet needs may be acceptance. So how does one go about finding that in a more appropriate way? And for those who are Christians, well, there's always the question of, well, how, what is God's intention for you for the restoration of yourself in that place? And for meeting those needs in ways that are life-giving. Mm. But that's a long journey. Yeah. And often in this process of recovery, we talk about a two to five year journey towards building a recovery life, which is quite different from what one may talk about as against a sobriety life. Often in, in the in the sector, you hear this term sobriety, which basically means not doing it. It's like alcoholics being you know, sobriety. You're just not drinking. Mm. Well, just trying to hit sobriety without dealing with all the rest of the pain becomes a very dark and difficult place. And people either find themselves going, had enough of this in more blunt terms than that, and heading back to the pornography, or deciding to develop another coping strategy, which may equally be unhelpful. And you end up playing whack-a-mole with dealing with one problematic behavior being swapped for another. So sobriety isn't the name of the game in my idea. It's recovery and building a holistic life that is life transforming not just about giving up something. Well, I guess my next question would be how, in your experience with people you've worked with, how, how has porn affected emotions and the way, the way that people think? Um, so forming emotions, but also how people process their emotions and also uh, respond you know, as, as a result. So obviously if you feel sad, people will often cry. Is that, is that affected in terms of pornography use? So when thinking about emotions, often the pornography that is being used when it's problematic is being used to suppress or null out the emotions. So it's actually often being used as a, as a way of killing it off rather than engaging with an emotion. So it's the person is feeling uncomfortable but is wanting to get away from that feeling of discomfort as, well, as quickly as possible. And again, quite often when people have been using pornography for that purpose for a long time, they may not actually be aware of what emotion they're trying to deal with in the first place. All they're aware is how quickly they come onto pornography. So part of the, the journey is to tease that out a little bit, create a bit of space to say, I wonder what's going on for you here. I wonder what was going on for you. Where's the pattern? Is it that whenever you've had an argument, is it when you're feeling sad? Is it when you're feeling anxious? Is it when you feel like you deserve a treat and you want to celebrate something? What, what's actually unpacking in here and, and how do we then begin to learn how to handle that? So there's, a, there's an, an acronym that I often use with people of, of RAIN, which is R-A-I-N, and it's about how do you learn to recognize what's actually going on for you? Do you give yourself space to acknowledge it? That's the A. How do you inquire about it? The kind of, hello, what, what do I need here? And then, then you can begin to say, well, how do I nurture myself? How do I meet that need in a better way? But for those who've been using pornography for a long time to just deal with emotions, the, the, pro, the, the, the length of time between being kind of activated, if I'm feeling uncomfortable, to getting onto porn or becoming preoccupied about getting onto porn becomes so short 
that they're not even aware of what emotions triggered it in the first place. So we need to take a step back. And then we often find that there is issues around low self-esteem and shame, anxiety, anger, fear, all of that, which actually has little to do with the pornography itself, but a lot to do with what else they've experienced in life in other places. I suppose one of those factors could well be trauma. So people who experience traumatizing events in life who then try to suppress the emotions that come as a result of the trauma. Do you yes. often see that? Do you often see people who have been traumatized or experienced? Uh, yes. Yeah, so again, in the sector, that one model that we look at is, is a model developed by someone called Paula Hall, who's kind of the UK expert in the field, really. And she developed what she called the OAT model, O-A-T model which basically says that within every behavior you want to engage in, you need to have an opportunity. If you haven't got the opportunity, it doesn't matter how much you desire to do that behavior, you're never going to do it. I mean, for example, I would love to go and see Earthrise from the moon. I, I, would, I think it would be one of the most amazing experiences to see. And I, yeah, I would love to do that. I'm never going to get the opportunity partly because I'm never going to be able to afford the opportunity, but mm. I can't do that behavior, however much I might want to. So the opportunity for me isn't, isn't available. But once you have the opportunity, there are two other things that you can look at. How much of this is about attachment or about your mood regulation and the way that you connect to people and, and life, and how much of it is about the trauma that you've experienced in life? Now, historically... What was found was that a lot of people who came with sex addiction issues or pornography issues seem to have attachment issues and trauma issues in their life playing into it. But nowadays, especially amongst the younger population, it feels as though it's mostly opportunity and it's a learned pattern of behaviour. Right. Um, for example, it's not uncommon for children at school to be exposed to pornography from the age of 10 or, or younger. That's really not that uncommon. And so there's something going on in the brain formation at that age. It's just not really ready to deal with that kind of material and content, mm. but that material and content will grab the brain. And so there may be an opportunity behavior that's developing because of the age in which people are introduced to it, because of the ease with which one can get at it on the internet anytime, anywhere. So we, are, we have seen a shift where instead of mostly being about attachment and trauma, opportunity only, is becoming part of the picture for some people. My last question, and thank you so much for coming on. It's honestly such a, a treat to, to be able to speak to you and, and to listen to, to all your knowledge, uh, which is vast. Uh, my last question would be just a, a personal personal one in terms of like what your personal opinion is. So we see in terms of alcohol, you mentioned gambling and gaming and, and drugs. There, there are restrictions that have been put in place, obviously, by the government. It is, you know, legal to, to take certain drugs. Uh, that substance abuse, gambling has res re restrictions and restraints. Do you think we will get to a point where there will be uh, more restraints on pornography? And if so, what sort of restraints would well, you, when, you recommend? Or When one considers that pornography is supposedly aimed at the mature audience, uh, and supposedly the porn industry is meant to be a responsible industry, although how much that may be the case may be debatable. I know that Pornhub is facing some serious lawsuits around um, the hosting of child sex abuse images and, and rape porn and the like. Um, so they, they are going through some serious situations uh, at the moment. But if the industry is meant to be 
aiming, you know, producing material that's aimed at the mature adult audience, and it's meant to be a responsible industry, then I do sit and wonder why the same constraints that are about, that are there around gaming and gambling with regard to age verification and uh, and needing to uh, give the proper credentials around credit card use and that kind of thing. I do wonder why, if all of that technology is available in one sector, this supposedly responsible industry has not voluntarily adopted it anyway. I would expect, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if as the evidence comes out around potential impact on the developing mind, and that's where the science and the neurobiology comes in, I wouldn't be surprised that if, if the government follows the evidence, the scientific evidence, then I wouldn't be at all surprised that they decide to follow that evidence and require this to be put in place. Yeah. But unfortunately, given the nature and the slowness and the pace within which these things work and the resistance within the industry itself, I expect it will take some time. Once again, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. To all those listening, we hope you've benefited from this. We've covered a lot of topics, some quite heavy, so do contact us at the Stewart's Trust if you want to talk anything through and we'll see you next time. And thank you once again, Peter.